You're listening to episode 68 of the Journey to Launch podcast, the actionable guide for women to reach their goals. We're talking about the Feminist Financial Handbook, a modern woman's guide to a wealthy life. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome back to another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. Thank you for joining me this week. If you are a new listener, welcome. I hope you enjoy the content. If you are a returning listener, that means you must like it. Thank you for coming back. Really appreciate you. I'm going to be talking to Bryn Conroy, who wrote the book, The Feminist Financial Handbook, A Woman's Modern Guide to a Wealthy Life. And the book was just released. It's a really good book. And I got a chance to talk to Bryn about some of the concepts in the book and about just her story. What made her want to write such an amazing book and what's her motivation? And it was really just insightful to hear from her, not only her story of how she pulled herself up and got on the right track with her finances, but then in return now how she's providing tools for women in general, to beat systematic oppression and to get past the hurdles so we can get to our aspirations. And listen, yes, this is a book primarily for women. And this episode was going to talk about women issues. But even if you're a man listening, I'm pretty sure you have a woman in your life that you love. So whether that's your mom, aunt, sister, daughter. And so these issues are not just women issues. These are everyone's issues, men issues, women issues. And I'm so happy that I got to talk to Brynn about these concepts in her book. Before we get started and hop into the interview, as I always say, if you're enjoying the podcast, please don't forget to tell a friend to tell a friend and also rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to this, especially if you listen to this in Apple Podcasts. That's that purple app on your phone. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 68. And I'm actually going to be giving away two free copies of this book. And so if you want to learn how to win this book, just stay tuned to the end. I'm going to share with you how you can get your free copies and where you can also pick up the book. Hey, journeyers, I'm excited to bring you another amazing conversation with a woman who I really believe is just bringing a lot of great conversation and enlightenment towards the topic of women and money. And it's Bryn Conroy. Hi, Bryn. Hi, how are you? Good. And so you are the creator of the Femme Frugality, the blog, and now you're writing a book. And I want you to come on the show, talk a bit about your story, and then some of these amazing concepts that you have in the book about financial independence, financial freedom, and women, how it's different for women, what things we can do to succeed and everything. So again, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about the passion behind wanting to talk so much about women and empowerment and money. Like I know you're a woman, so obviously there's a tie in (laughs) interest in that, but your blog's name is Femme Frugality. Why so much feminism. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I think that financial independence and just finances in general are such a huge form of empowerment for women. Our social construct over the past hundred years has changed dramatically. And the ways in which we have to pursue financial security, they haven't necessarily caught up, or at least our cultural norms surrounding them haven't. So I really like to kind of focus in on the issues that we face as women and then ways that we can kind of work around those obstacles. It's funny because I have a lot of men listeners too. And so I know that like maybe off the title or just the introduction itself, they might be thinking, well, I guess this isn't for me because I'm not a woman. But I always say that men should definitely still be involved in this conversation because you have women in your lives, whether that's sisters, mother, daughter, wife, or to understand this perspective and be a part of it is still important, wouldn't you say, for men? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's awesome to want to be there for your family members and your offspring and your spouse and everything. I also think that there's a lot of these issues that men should be concerned about just out of plain virtue. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Things like maternity leave, for example, when we look at it as more than maternity leave and we start looking at more as like family leave and strengthening families, that's a men's issue too. There's just so many things like that, like the pay gap, like if you want to be compensated fairly for the work that you're doing, rather than just because of society's preconceived notions of you. One big thing about feminism that I'm really into is intersectional feminism. So that's not just looking at, hey, I'm a woman. It's also looking at like, hey, I'm a woman and I'm oppressed in all these other ways. Maybe it's because of my ethnicity my race, my gender identity, my sexual orientation, whether or not I have a disability, all of these other things kind of compound the oppression that we face and that affects us economically. And that includes men. When we look at intersectional feminism, we're also including men who fall into those categories. So just because you're not female doesn't mean that feminism isn't inclusive of you. Right, or not important. And if we're just looking at it, like you said, You don't have to just look at it as a virtuous kind of like this is the right thing to do, but it does greatly directly impact the happiness, the way this world works. It benefits men also to jump in the conversation and help fix or at least bring light to these issues and problems. Exactly. Wanted to talk a bit about your background because you yourself have an interesting story. You had a later start in your finances yourself, so you weren't always financially aware and did the right things. Can you talk about your awakening to becoming more in control of your finances? I've actually always been pretty fiscally responsible. My problem was that I did not have a lot of income with which to be fiscally responsible. Before I started writing, I lived in poverty for the vast majority of my adult life. I always managed my money well. I actually managed to stay out of debt for an extremely long period of time. That actually didn't come until I had dug my way out (laughs) of poverty, which is a whole different issue we could probably talk for another episode about. But I managed my money very well. The problem was it just wasn't there. There were months where we would choose between food and electricity, and it wasn't because we were out spending money on clothes or any luxury or anything like that. It was because that's what we had money for. We did not have a college education, neither me nor my partner. And we didn't really see a way out. We were working super hard. We both worked 40 hours a week. We had side hustles. 
and the money just was not there. Can I just interject? And when you talk about poverty, because I always want to put it in context. When you say poverty, do you mean that you guys were working minimum wage jobs, had just enough to barely cover expenses? Yeah, that's exactly it. We were working 40 hours a week. And I believe at the time, my take-home pay was around 1500 a month. That was after taxes were taken out. And at that particular job, around the time that I started writing about finances, I was fortunate enough to have health insurance through my employer. This was before the ACAs and I have a pre-existing condition. So if I did not have it through my employer, I did not have it. That was after healthcare premiums came out as well. And that was a super big blessing actually to have health insurance, but it was rough. And that was only my situation for about a year or so with that job prior to that. I did not have access to health insurance. That was my take-home pay. And then his wasn't too much drastically different. And where did you guys live? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yep. Mm, I'm still there. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting too, because we have a lot of education saturation in our area. So there's a lot of jobs that you might be able to get in different parts of the country that you cannot get here necessarily with just a high school diploma. I was working in a daycare at the time and I was making under $10 an hour. And again, working four tens a week, so 40 hours and then also doing weird little side hustles <laughs> on the side. Right. And we were just kind of resigned to that. We didn't really see a way to get further education. We knew college was expensive. And we also knew that we were already running around like crazy. We didn't know how we would work and go to school. We didn't really see a whole lot of opportunity in front of us. Mm. But partway into that relationship, I found out that I was actually expecting. And I realized that resignation was no longer an option. We had to make things better and that there must be a way because we could not be choosing between electricity and food when there was a child. And my health insurance did not completely cover pregnancy. So there was a big concern with healthcare costs too. We, to that point, had not gone on any state benefits. It was kind of this pride thing. I don't know. We just didn't want to take. We thought we could provide for ourselves and we thought that, yeah, we might struggle, but it was like some sort of like stupid badge of honor. But once we found out that I was expecting, we did go on those benefits because I was pregnant, I was able to get on my state's Medicaid, which I could not do as an adult unless I was pregnant at the time. We also looked into education and it turns out there was a ton of ways to get grants and scholarships and we figured out ways to make it happen. It wasn't the early days of the internet really, but it was at a time whenever not all the information was as easily accessible as it might be now. Now you Google something and it's like the answer is right there for you. Back then, it took a little bit more digging. It wasn't like the Ask Jeeves days or anything, but we did that digging and we found a way to not only pay for school and get school for free, but also to get a refund check every semester so that we actually had some cash flow coming in from the education. Okay. I'm going to top in because I want to put a framework also around the time of this. This was 2011. Like I said, definitely not the baby days of the internet, but now I feel like there's a lot of information out there about, hey, you can go and fill out your FAFSA and you'll definitely be able to go to community college for free. That was just not a piece of common knowledge that I had anyways at that point in my life. That was what took me a little bit of digging and then going to state school and everything as well on top of that. Right. So I guess what age are we talking about? 
when you had the latest start now, your background is so much more clearer now. Part of it was you didn't know what to do and you had limited resources to do things with. And I think it's fascinating that you've come to the place you are now, which we'll talk about, where you are so much more in control, have more autonomy over your life and finances. How old were you when you really just started to become aware and knew that you had to make more and do more for yourself? Yeah, I was in my mid-20s at that point. Okay. And you think that the basis for that was really becoming pregnant and wanting more for your child and yourself? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I straight up knew that I could not provide for my child on my own. We were struggling to provide for ourselves. And I wanted something better for them. Mm -hmm. And also I wanted to be able to actually be able to give them sustenance. So it went beyond just, I want my child to do better than I do. For me personally, it was like, this is real. This is happening right now. And if something doesn't change, I'm not going to be able to provide what I need to for this child to live a healthy life. So you had this realization, this motivation, which I think is the starting point for any change is like, You need that awakening moment to say, okay, I'm going to do something different. There's something else on the other side and I need to get there because the current situation I'm in, it's not serving me. It's not what I want. So that mind shift obviously was the starting point. But then you went to school. What did you go to school for? I worked in a super specialized subfield of education. After a few years, we kind of had a regional work shortage and I was young in its education. So I was like at the bottom of all the rosters. And I had to make a decision on whether I wanted to continue pursuing that with all the uncertainty, whether I wanted to move, which I did not because I have a special needs child and the healthcare coverage for them and also the access to services here is bar none the best for their situation, potentially in the country. So I did not want to leave the region, but I also had this blogging thing going on the side and I decided, you know what, I need to make this work. So I shifted from that work in education into becoming a full-time freelance writer and maintaining my own site as a source of income. And that's provided for our family for the past several years now. Right. So you started then Femme Frugality how long ago? Seven years now. Oh, wow. And what was the motivation behind just starting the blog? Like why start a blog? You're working already. You're probably making more than you were. And so now why this outlet? Why the blog? When I first started writing, it wasn't all socioeconomics and intersectional feminism. A lot of it was just, oh my God, I'm finding all these ways to go to school for free. And I'm finding all of these complex tax credits that actually help me. And so I was finding all these really unique ways to earn and save money, even just as a low income earner. And I told all of my friends about it. And it got to a point where I was becoming annoying. (laughs) They did not want to hear about it anymore. But I knew that the information that I was finding, it was taking me a lot of effort to find it. And I knew that there must be other people out there who could benefit from it. And so I decided to turn to the internet and just turn it all into a blog. And so that's how it all really got started back then. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that you started the blog as kind of a way to say, okay, instead of me talking to everyone individually in my life and maybe coming off as whatever brand, like shut up, it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to put it out (laughs) on this blog. I'm going to help other people. And if you're interested, you come. And now, like you mentioned, you're able to do this full time and you have a book coming out. And I love stories like this where 
this passion that you had that you were growing, you now are able to make a living off of and you're able to provide for your family. Yeah, life certainly takes us in unexpected directions. And I'm super grateful for everything that happened along the way. It's not something that I could have predicted seven years ago or quite honestly that I might not have even set it as a goal seven years ago. But the fact that I ended up where I am now, I feel extremely fortunate and I'm really happy with the way things turned out. Right. And now you're helping now society become more aware of these issues with women and bringing these things to light. So let's talk a little bit about some of the concepts in your book. And one of them was that for women, the financial scape, reaching financial freedom and independence, it's different. It's a different path or there are different considerations than what maybe men would face. So can we talk a little bit about that? How is it different for women versus men on this journey? There's several factors. I think the first one is recognizing that because the social contract has changed so much, it's really important for women to focus on financial independence. One of the women I interviewed for the book, Ellen Masikut, she is financially independent. She's done it with her partner, which she credits a lot of her success to, but we can kind of get into that in a minute. Um, but she says that one of the major reasons that she thought it was so important for herself to pursue financial independence as a woman was because marriage has changed so drastically. The social contract used to be you get married to a man, maybe you love him, maybe you don't, maybe you're miserable, maybe you're not, but he will financially provide for you. And the odds of that marriage ending in divorce are extremely slim. And now we look at how things are today and In Canada, where LN lives, it's about, I'm rounding here, but about a 40% divorce rate by your 20th anniversary. And here in the States, it's about 50%. And so that contract has really changed. We don't have a guarantee that somebody is going to be there to provide for us anymore. And that's not a bad thing. It's good to be autonomous. It's good to have your own form of self-empowerment. But At the same time, society hasn't necessarily caught up. Women still get paid less than men. We still tend to enter slash are encouraged to enter fields that do not pay as highly as men. We still tend to stay home with our children more often than men. So there are all of these social factors that are still kind of remnants of the old social contract that kind of hold us back in this new pursuit of that financial independence that is so important because the social contract has indeed changed. I find that so fascinating. And it's funny because I was actually doing some research for something about the history of engagement rings. And that's exactly one of the reasons why the ring became so important or this symbol of love and money because in the 1940s, they started doing away with the breach of promise to marry law, which literally said a woman was allowed to sue a fiance who broke off a wedding. This was like in the 30s and before. And then now in the 40s, they're doing away with this law. And at the perfect time, now diamond rings are coming into play where women are now saying and men are wanting to give these diamond rings to show affection. But now women are able to use the ring as a sort of almost promise on itself where, okay, if you break this off, I can keep this ring. It's almost like an insurance policy. Yeah, like you got to put down a deposit. <laughs> right, right. It's probably just the thought of that's changed throughout the years, but it's fascinating how just that, even just the social contract of being promised to someone and the idea that back in the day, men provided where the woman usually stayed home. And then that obviously has changed so much now. 
And then, like you said, women needing to work more. The fact that usually one income is not enough for a lot of people. So you need the two income household. And then on top of that, add kids and all the responsibilities. And you have women who now not only are they making less, but they have more on their plate. So yeah, find that totally fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So as women now, so okay, we're faced with this issue or this thing that holds us back. We don't get paid as much. And there are now a lot of society pressures on us to do everything. So what can we do now as women to put ourselves in a better position to become autonomous with our finances in life? I think the biggest thing is education, especially when we're talking about financial independence. There is a huge wage gap, obviously. But one thing we don't hear about as often is the investment gap. And that's really interesting to me because women tend to set lower investment goals. They tend to invest less and they tend to have less confidence is the biggest thing when it comes to investing, which is extremely ironic because when we look at studies that compare male and female investors, female investors are actually more competent over time. And we often stunt ourselves though because we are not talk to about it at a younger age. We don't have that same confidence. We feel like the market is just really confusing. And how do I even enter into this? Or, oh, this is only for rich people who are enabled by their income. And a lot of women, I think it's close to a third of women in this country, live in poverty or on the brink of poverty. When we have all of those factors coming together, we're just not confident enough to do something that actually can be super easy. And I think that that's another really big thing too, is that as we're raising our own daughters, because all these social contracts are changing, but our norms aren't necessarily changing as quickly, we don't talk to our daughters as often about things like investing. And so you and I might, because of the fields that we work in, Mm -hmm. but in general, as a culture, we do not do those things. So when those girls grow up, they don't feel as confident. And then that further adds to the investment gap. Really just educating ourselves on those concepts, not giving up before we get started saying it's too hard or this isn't for me, just really throwing ourselves into it and getting as much knowledge as we can, which today with the internet is more doable than ever before, and really being active participants in the stock market and in our own futures. I find it also interesting because, like you said, kind of in our field, in personal finance, kind of like on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, so social media, and then people who have blogs and podcasts, there are a lot of women. It's almost like a, not a false sense, but there is, I think, a bubbling up of a lot of women voices in this space. We have our own way that we talk about finances. So our audience might take the one of us more than the other, just because we're more relatable in certain areas, which is amazing. So you have all these voices of different women where you can find something that you can relate to if you look for it. But then it's almost like a false sense of this awakening. Because in my world, because I do have a lot of personal finance online friends, there are a lot of women. And even on my podcast, I find that I actually tend to interview a lot more women than I do men. Again, it's just my bubble of personal finance and who I'm talking to. And there are women in this space. But then in the population, though, that's not necessarily the case. So while I might say, like, I know a lot of women who are leaders in their finances with their husband or wife or whatever, in the population worldwide, it's still an issue. So I think it's important, too, as personal finance thought leaders and sharing this information that we remember that while immediately in our immediate circle, we might think that, yeah, we women, we're doing so much better, like we're doing more work and we're getting paid more. There are a lot of women who are still not at that point. 
No, exactly. And I think it's really interesting too. We're living in one of the most insane times ever. Culture is changing so quickly because with all this access to information, we are able to not only gain access to all that information, but also like you were talking about access to all those different voices and all those different experiences. And we are able to kind of take on new perspectives and expand our worldviews and expand our views and what we ourselves are capable of. So while all of this data about the investment gap is real and true, and while we are all guilty of cyberbalkanism, guilty of staying within our own little circles on the internet, that does not necessarily mean that things aren't changing very rapidly. And in some cases, it's been for the worse. And in some cases, it's definitely been for the better. And there's been a lot of progress made. Mm -hmm. And another thing that you mentioned are the different judgments and factors of being a modern day woman and how women are judged more on their choices and their financial choices. So whether that be they're considered cheap and too frugal versus if they're too spendy and like luxurious things, we're judged more on the spectrum than men. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. I think this is really interesting because on the one end of the spectrum, it's like if you know how to use a pair of scissors and clip a coupon, that must mean that you don't know how to invest or you're not interested in it, right? Because frugality at the household level must be exclusive of (laughs) looking to your future and your 401k. And that's not true. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can be frugal and clip coupons and also be looking forward to your future. And I think sometimes we look at the inherent sexism in ideas like that, that our society holds at large, and we internalize them. And we say, oh, well, I'm really good at money in this way. And so I'm going to keep working on doing it well in this way, because that's where my talents lie. When in reality, your abilities are boundless you can pursue good money habits in all of these different ways. And I think also because of that stereotype, we also have a tendency to not market to women when we're talking about financial products, especially investment products. As society as a culture, we don't view the conversation as involving women and therefore it does not. That's changing slowly as more women move into positions of power in the financial sector. But yeah, that's definitely one aspect of it. And then another one that's kind of interesting is the whole idea of retail therapy and shopaholism. The idea that it seems like it's very gender-based in our society. We tend to assume that it's more of a female problem than a male problem. But when we look at the actual numbers, it's actually very close. Women, about 6% of the female population, have this problem with a shopping addiction. But 5.5% of men also have this problem with a shopping addiction. It's an issue that you deal with because you have a shopping addiction, not because of your gender. But I think sometimes that we project it so heavily onto women that it's easier to justify maybe decisions that we wouldn't typically make or we place these judgments onto women that just are completely inaccurate as to their financial capabilities and their financial restraint. hmm that's one side of it too, right? Like we're talking about just observations and facts that are happening in society. And at the macro level, it can sometimes feel like, okay, that's what's happening. But how can I now in my life, in my body, in my mind, in my actions have control, right? Like what can I control over and with my finances? And that kind of leads me to, you mentioned retail therapy and money habits for women. 
And I think a lot of that ties into now as a woman, what we consider our enough point and our happiness point and how can we be more aware of what it is that we're spending on and not because we think it's the right thing to do and we don't want to be judged, but because we internally know this is what's great for my life, my goals, but also this is what's important for my happiness. You mentioned this in the book about finding a contentment level and happiness level, which is very important also on this FI journey, whether you're a man or woman, to really understand that concept. Yeah, definitely. And I think this breaks down into two separate conversations, really, because on the one side, we have finding our enough level with our money, right? And that's going to vary greatly depending on where we live, what kind of lifestyle we are accustomed to, or that we are willing to settle on. Even just our income capabilities, our enough is going to vary greatly from household to household, from region to region. And I'm a big fan on that side of things, um, setting priorities. Like I said before, I have a special needs kid. So there's a lot of therapies and there's all of this extra stuff that goes into raising them. So my time is divvied up very differently than it might be if I were not in that situation. So while I do not work an exorbitant amount of hours, I still work to a point where I can provide for my entire family. And that is where my enough is. I think that it might be a little bit easier for me to draw that line simply because I do have those time constraints. But I think it's important for each one of us to make sure that we are not becoming workaholics in the pursuit of cash and really learning how to value the things that are in front of us that are important. I know you did a huge thing with that recently whenever you left your full-time job and went in pursuit in this direction. And I listened to that episode. I was so happy. (laughs) She's got it. Yeah. Maybe FI is a couple years later, but also your lived experience in your life now, it's going to match up so much more with who you are and what you want. Right. And don't you think also part of that is just realizing the wealth that you currently have now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great to like look forward for the millions that you'll have if you keep working or that you invest. That's great. But acknowledging and being happy with what is, whether that is the job that you currently have that gives you the health insurance and allows you to put food on the table or allows you to start paying off your debt that's important and you should be happy because I feel like that contentment level comes from accepting what is while working towards something else, obviously, and but still being grateful for what you already have. And with my situation, you hit the nail on the head with, I could have kept working in this safe job that paid me a lot of money where I would definitely reach all my financial goals when I thought I would and maybe even sooner. But my happiness level, that was taking a hit because of the money. And so for me, because of my kids, because of my wanting to do more things that excite me and work that I'm passionate about, I made that choice to say my happiness is equally important as the money. And so I'm going to take more of that in consideration on this journey. Exactly. And another thing that you hit the nail on the head with is is looking at meaningful work. I interviewed a woman who studies contentment across female populations across the world. She works at the Brookings Institute. Her name is Carol Graham. And everybody should go look at her work because it's so interesting. What she tried to convey to me was that we're all born with inherent happiness levels, right? It's kind of like a bell curve and most people fall somewhere in the middle. On the left-hand side, you're going to have people who are more naturally like 
I'm content. (laughs) I tend to fall on that side if I'm going to be honest with you. And then you have people on the other side who tend to be more content. And the people who are on my side and tend to not have those super high happiness levels, you might focus in on money more because you view it as a solution to your problems. When in reality, from the studies they've done, that's just not the case. And then the people on the left-hand side, what tends to make them happier, actually, and sometimes they tend to have more money because if you are happier, you might have more opportunities in front of you. People might like to be around you more. You might have more optimism and come at the work that you do in a different way that allows for more advancement. But their pursuit is not money. They seem to inherently know that meaningful work is what's going to bring them even more happiness. And because they're kind of already in that happy place, that's where they already are and what they naturally pursue. And so if you're like me and you're on that further left-hand side where you're not naturally as happy, nothing's wrong with you. It's just humanity. It's just the distribution that we have amongst our populations. I think really remembering that, yes, a pursuit of money is important. You have to put food on the table. You can't be living in poverty like I was and trying to raise a child. I mean, you can. People do it all the time. But yeah, that is going to affect your happiness levels. But if you pursue that meaningful work, whether that be some women choose to stay home with their children and being a stay-at-home mom is where their fulfillment comes from. That's cool and that's awesome. You don't have to have meaningful work outside the home in order for this to apply. But then if you are doing work outside the home, making sure that that work isn't just there because you want to be making six figures and you're going to be miserable. And I know that you had a lot of respect and you were very good at your job before. I'm not trying to say specifically for your situation before. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But just in general, you might be better off taking a pay cut if you feel like what you're doing is having a greater impact in the world and you're more engaged with society and making a difference. And that's meaningful to you. And what's meaningful to people is going to vary from individual to individual. For some people, that might be in the financial sector. For some people, that might be working with a nonprofit that works in the community. There's no right or wrong answer to what's meaningful to you. But if you're trying to pursue that contentment along with pursuing FI, I think it's important to remember that the dollars and cents aren't necessarily what make it. It's really the meaning for you and your connection to your work. Mm -hmm. And it's so important as you travel on the journey to find ways to have meaningful work. So whether you're able to accomplish that in your full-time job, that's amazing. Or if you decide to take on a hobby or a side hustle or just something that allows you to exert and feel that energy that helps replenish you as you continue on the path. We're talking about women and money and feminism and meaningful work, which can apply to everyone. It seems like you started Femme Frugality as an outlet, as a way to help others have a voice. And now it's turned into something now that it's providing you a living. How can I guess other people who are on this path start to find their thing that they can, once they reach FI, go into or just be content and provide that happiness as they continue on? I like a lot what you said about looking for that outside of work because honestly, I loved my old job. I had I found a lot of meaning in it and I was extremely sad whenever that chapter of my life ended or was put on hold. But at the same time, while I was pursuing all that, I did have another hobby. Like I did pursue writing on the side and that ended up being my fiscal salvation, but also it ended up being a field that I could go into that I still find meaning in. 
I've been very lucky that my work has been fulfilling to me. But if your work is not fulfilling to you, you don't necessarily have to find your meaning through a salaried position. You can go into volunteer work or look at your hobbies. And then maybe someday you'll find yourself in a situation like me where your economics are threatened by forces outside of your control. But you have this other thing you've been doing on the side that you've been building relationships with that really brings meaning to your own life that you can then pursue for other economic opportunities if you really put the elbow grease into it. But again, if your meaning doesn't ever bring you a cent into your bank account, that's okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You can totally have your economy and your search for meaning be separate parts of your life, but still a whole part of who you are. Right. And it contributes to part of your wealth because that wealth bucket is not just cash and money. It's other things. Bringing it back to women, the responsibilities and all the roles we're expected to play. And even myself, you find that there's not enough time to do things that are meaningful to you because of the list of things you have to do. So you have to work. And then if you have kids, take care of the kids. And if you have to then be in charge of the home and clean and cook, like that's a lot on a woman's plate. And on top of that to say, okay, now I have to carve out time for myself to find things I like. I think a lot of women then don't end up doing that because they just feel like they don't have the time. So any thoughts around that and what we can do to help women find that time for themselves? Absolutely. This is going to delve into a deeply personal space. After I had children, that was essentially where I was operating from. I was working towards and in careers that I did love, but I was also a mom. The reason that I was doing everything that I was doing, I was fortunate enough that I liked the content of the work, but the real reason I was doing it was to provide for everybody else. And before these two career fields were their own separate things, I was coming home and doing the writing. I still took my kids out to do different cultural events and their education and the therapies and did a lot of things with my relationship as well. And just in the past year, I realized how miserable that had made me. It's like I was technically doing all the right things. I was doing all the responsible things. I was doing all the things a good mom was supposed to be doing, but I wasn't my best self. And as a result, I wasn't the best mother to my kids, even though I was going through the motions. And so this year, I made some pretty big decisions to do things that I thought I couldn't do. I took a trip with my sibling to Japan to visit a childhood friend, even though it meant leaving my kids for a couple of weeks. And usually the mom guilt would Mm -hmm. just stop me in my tracks, but I did it. And it was one of the best experiences in my life. And guess what? My kids still love me. And I wrote a book, which is a big time endeavor and something that I did not think that I could complete, but I told myself I was going to do it. And I did. I also started going back to school to study more on the anthropological, socioeconomic side of things with money because it is something that really does interest me. And again, that's something that you look at my schedule and you think like, oh, it's crazy. But I've realized that if you don't carve the time out for yourself and for your interests and for your own life, you end up in this place that's just not good for anybody. You really do have to take care of your own inner garden, like your own inner landscape and peace so that you can be the best 
mom so that you can be the best employee or self-employed person. And if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to excel at all of those other things. Mm -hmm. So I'd say even if you think you can't do it, set it as a goal. And I think that you'll be surprised. Right. It sounds like just schedule it and get it done and work through that guilt. Just do it because being a martyr is not helpful to anyone. Exactly. (laughs) And then it seems like also you need that support system. You need that, whether it's family, friends, your partner, you need to ask them to also step up, especially your partner who's, if they're in the household with you, if you now need to do more for yourself, they might need to take on more of the workload. So you can't be afraid or too prideful to say, listen, you need to step it up or we need to come to more of a equal agreement in how things get done. Absolutely. All right. With that said, then I'm going to take like a three week vacation somewhere. Thanks. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Do it. I swear you'll come back a different person. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm loving this conversation. I'm really hoping that people listening, especially women can start to realize that, yeah, the money is important and this whole pathway, it's a lot of technical stuff. So budgeting and investing and saving, that's important, but there's also this self-worth and happiness level that's just as important as the money that if you get right, if you keep working at it, will serve you really well and actually make your goal to reaching FI more attainable. Exactly. It just makes everything else easier. This was an amazing talk. So Brent, tell everyone where they can find you and more about your amazing book. I am on femfrugality.com. That's my website. I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. That's at femfrugality, all one word. And you can find my book on Amazon. You can order it there. If you prefer, you can go to Barnes & Noble. It's there too. And the name of it one more time? The Feminist Financial Handbook. And I'll link all the stuff we talked about, link to buy the book and your blog in the show notes, everyone. So thanks so much again, Bryn, for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bryn. It was really insightful and I hope it gave you some more fuel, some more tools that you can use on your journey. If you actually want to win her book, so I have two copies that I'm giving away to two special journeyers. And if you want to win a copy, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash win. I'm going to be doing a giveaway. And if you want to win, so in real time, this episode comes out October 24th and I'll be running this contest up until October 29th. And so if you want to win from now until October 29th, this is what you can do. All you have to do is like my Facebook page or leave an Apple podcast review. So either you do one of those two things and you send me a screenshot of the Apple podcast review. So that way I know that you did it. And if you like the Facebook page, just like it. There's no really way to check that. I'll just believe that you did it. When you enter your name and email into the page journeytolaunch.com slash win that will put you on the list that then is eligible to win the book and I will announce winners to my email list so make sure you're on the email list to see if you win and if you win I will contact you directly but just make sure you're tuned in that way and I'll announce it in the Facebook group I actually usually do the live drawings of the winners in the Facebook group because I like to show people when I'm actually picking it versus arbitrarily I'm just telling you that someone won and you're just like, wait, how did you pick that? So I do actually do it with a random picker. It's not me. I actually just put all the emails and names in and it selects it for me. So I actually like showing that in the Facebook group so you guys can kind of just see with me how it's done. 
So go to journeytolaunch.com slash win if you want to get your chance to win one of the books. Don't forget, you can at me at Journey to Launch on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Let me know if anything popped up for you, anything that kind of stuck out the most. If you want to continue the conversation, you can always do that in the Facebook group, journeytolaunch.com slash community. Okay, journeyers, until next time, keep on journeying. Keep on journeying.